he mentions his sandwich is dry, and then his type A daughters are like bickering about it for yeah. like five minutes. Oh, well, he should put more avocado on it. But no, they're like, <laughs> it's so weird because they're explaining to each other why he doesn't like the sandwich. He's not saying a word. No. He's just eating the sandwich. <laughs> and that, but, but to me, that like says so much about this family dynamic. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special bonus episode of the Spoiler Warning Podcast. I am Christopher Schneezy. And I'm Stephen Miller. And if you're joining us for the first time, the Spoiler Warning Podcast is a weekly film review program. Each week on the show, we're going to dive in, debate, discuss, and argue over the latest film releases coming to a theater near you. This week, we're talking about a few films coming to a home near you. Uh, We are talking about, uh, we're going to be giving you an omnibus review of the five Oscar-nominated documentaries from last year. Um, those are the films Icarus, Strong Island, Last Men in Aleppo, Abacus, Small Enough to Jail, and Faces, Places. Um, that order is semi-random. It's the order that I watch them in. <laughs> um, but uh, that's what we're doing here today. Um, three of these documentaries are available on Netflix. One of them is available on Amazon Prime and one of them is not available until the 27th of this month. I actually didn't get to see it, but Steven mm-hmm. saw it. He's going to be talking about Faces Places. Yeah. That's why it's last on this list. Or the charming French name Visages Villages which I think is a much <laughs> a much more pleasant pun if you have to make one. <laughs> um, but yeah, so here we are. We're going to do this we just got finished with our review of the Cloverfield Paradox, so if you uh, haven't listened to that, just back up one episode of the feed and check that baby out. Um, <laughs> I think we had some fun talking about that film. Uh, almost as much fun as we had watching it. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we're going to do this. We're going to be talking about documentaries like our big omnibus review where we tried to cover everything we hadn't had a chance to talk to in December we're doing all these documentaries because thematically Oscars are coming up and they're all available to watch almost. Yeah, I don't know if it's always true that the Oscars that get not or the documentaries that get nominated for Oscars are available to stream. Usually when the Academy Awards roll around, the documentary section is one where I feel a huge blind spot because I'm like, yeah. I've seen maybe the top one of these movies. And it, it was just interesting to me this year how readily available all of them were. I don't know if that's the the Netflix as a production company thing. Uh, but there's just something about it that's, it, it's kind of cool. Like you could do what we did if you have no life and just <laughs> binge all of these in a single weekend and squeeze in Cloverfield. I know. I, I was attempted watching all of Altered Car- Carbon too, but uh, yeah. I just didn't have the time because I had to watch freaking four hours of goddamn Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all right because it got us a review of 10, uh, or not 10 Cloverfield uh the cloverfield paradox so it, it was all worth it speaking of movies about people who flew in some direction relevant to the sun should we get started <laughs> with icarus I, you know i did not even know where you were going with that but uh, i like i like what you did <laughs> if i would have been on the same page it would have been perfect so yeah uh let's start off with the film icarus uh it is basically the story of a man who just stumbles or cycles rather into this big conspiracy about uh, how russians are you know cheating the doping uh the anti-doping associations tests um yeah it's a it's a man who 
wants to get good at cycling, decides to get to start doping and try to maybe figure out how to beat the test, gets put in touch with an interesting man who originally worked for the Anti-Doping Association in Russia and sort of st- stumbles on to the big conspiracy that's been a big controversy as of late. So, Stephen Miller, what did you think of Icarus? Yeah, so for interesting to note that uh, Icarus is actually Russian for icky Russian plot to ruin the Olympics. Um, <laughs> nice. Is, yep. is that what we had to wait five minutes for the episode started to so yeah, come yeah, up with yeah. that pun? Yeah, that was just frantic typing. Um, but but no, I- Icarus is a strange documentary to me. This is the one documentary on the list that I had heard of prior to the Academy Award nominations being announced. Uh, largely because it was said to be a documentary that began in one place and ended in such a wildly different place. It just seemed like an incredible story. I I think I'd heard it on Slash Film. I'd read some AV Club review of it, maybe. It it had come up a few times. Um, And I think there are two very obvious touchstones for this movie. There's the movie that it wants to be at the beginning, which is Super Size Me, right? That's (laughs) the idea of a person willingly putting themselves through a thing that feels medically ill-advisable for the sake of showcasing a thing that you wouldn't normally showcase. And it ends like Tickled, which is a documentary (laughs) that begins in one place and ends in a wildly different conspiracy land from where it began. Um, Technically, wasn't it more like super high me because of all the doping? Yeah, (laughs) Sure, yeah. It's more like super high me. (laughs) I'll give you that, Grandpa. (laughs) Anyway, the two ways one can discuss this film are by discussing its validity as a documentary like the validity of the documentary it tries to tell, the thing that it sets out doing, and the value of the story. I think this is going to crop up repeatedly as we go through these movies. How do we consider a documentary? Is it about the artistic craft of making it? About the story that it tells? Or should we just not care and like take it holistically? Because that's how we would take any other movie, right? We wouldn't separate the two so much. Um, As a documentary, I think Icarus is not well-made in the slightest. (laughs) I think the narrative structure... Those those Netflix opening titles, though, are great. Oh, yeah, sure. Best best part. Like Easy, (laughs) the same kind of opening title. Um, The narrative structure, I think, is very confusing. So the first maybe 40 minutes of this movie is his doping super high me movie. This is a movie where uh, Brian Fogel wants to start taking... um, human growth hormone to get better at cycling. Uh, the process appears to be that you take a bunch of it at first and witness what it does to your body in the, in the like by looking at urine samples or maybe blood samples. And then a specialist can make a biological passport, which I guess means they can tailor something more specifically to you. That's like me hypothesizing. The movie spends forty minutes and never adequately explains that. I'll, I'll be honest. I don't. I don't even. I. I. To me, what I understood is he's like, "Hey, I'm gonna dope, and I want you to teach me how to beat the test." Mm-hmm. And he just kept peeing in cups. Yeah. And I had no idea how those were related to the same thing at all. Because even the guy he's put in touch with is like, all right, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to put all your pee in my bag. And I'm going to smuggle it into Russia. Done. I'm going <laughs> to dump it on Donald Trump and make a dossier about it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I didn't understand the doping plan. Like the expert that he is speaking to 
clearly is about a thing that hasn't happened yet because the structure of this film I, do we believe documentaries have spoilers like should we set ground rules for this now because it's not clear to me if we should imagine that they do or not i mean i <laughs> i <laughs> i described the premise as a guy stumbles on to the fact that like russians are cheating yeah, in sports yeah. <laughs> yeah which has been in the news this week so it's pretty, yeah, yeah, yeah pretty relevant um anyway he his plan is to take all this human growth hormone compete in not the tour de france but like the it's like the amateur version of the tour de france yeah which yeah, is yeah. supposedly much harder imagine if you take the whole tour de france in seven days instead of whatever i don't I, sure but i i he sort of tried to knows? like I, I pump it up it's as like, like this is crazier <laughs> yeah um and then he's going to go to russia to meet this grigory rodchenkov character um for presumably what is going to be the more detailed scientific breakthrough thing, which is what happens now that you have a real person handcrafting your doping schedule so that you can survive drug tests and not get caught. Like, I, I believe that's the way the film is intended. It does such a bad job explaining any of that. It makes no sense what is going on. I didn't understand his relation to this Grigory character. I didn't understand what he was preparing for even when he goes through the race i barely understood when did it turn when was he not doing as well it, it was just like a, it, it was not a well-crafted narrative at all yeah and i think once the more crazy things start to happen it becomes more interesting only because you are aware that there are higher powers at play some characters in this film become much more influential than you would expect yeah like and Putin. you yeah <laughs> and, and you and you watch the character of gregory go through things that at the beginning you wouldn't have expected to see right yeah. so it, well like when you when he first starts talking to him like uh, you're not sure he's not just a loon right like he might just be a guy who likes vials of pee mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's like I, i'm gonna give like the over under <laughs> it was very likely he was just a perv yeah. <laughs> and that it literally was going to turn into tickled. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm surprised that he even had a job at the anti-doping place in Russia. I'll be quite honest. Like the way he talks, even the scenes earlier on where the guy's like, he's like, oh, yeah, your your leg's too sore. Just stick it in your butt. <laughs> and the guy's I like. I how it, it seems like he intentionally takes off his shirt before every Skype call. <laughs> right? The dude's a weirdo. <laughs> he's a strange man. Yeah. He, but th- there's some joy in that. Like, in a well-made documentary, his personality would come out like Hodorowski does in Hodorowski's Dune, where it's, like, such, like, a wacky, intriguing character. Yeah. And the thing is, this documentary just doesn't paint a full picture of him because I don't I don't think Brian Fogel is a filmmaker. I think he's a bicyclist who <laughs> wanted to film himself doing this. Yeah. Um, but anyway, once the intrigue sets in, it's more compelling, like it's more thrilling than it had been before. I was curious where it was going to go. Uh, the character of Grigory goes through very difficult things, culminating in going into witness protection at the end, which is like, I've never seen that with my own eyes before, right? Like watched a person who is going into witness protection. That's a yeah. very interesting thing. But the documentary doesn't get any more well-made. Like, Like there's a conversation late in the film about this bait and switch that happened during the Sochi Olympics that weirdly delve into like a visual kind of cartoon to describe it for like seven minutes or something. Yeah. Which and, 
second best thing to the opening title credits. <laughs> I agree that that looked good. I think as a narrative device, it did nothing to explain anything of import well yeah, i that, think that, like that's... how bottles got moved around is like the least interesting thing in this documentary well the weirdest part of that is like supposedly he was in prison and then got out of prison and given a second chance but the second chance was to analyze pee for a living mm-hmm. like <laughs> i it, it, his, it's the craziest story yeah his story seemed way more interesting and he is a somewhat unreliable narrator of that story so it's yeah. hard to know what to delve into but yeah i it entertained me only because of the the degree to which it becomes embedded in scandal as it goes along. Yeah. That's very interesting. You never know where it's going to go to its credit. Like, you can't predict what's going to happen 10 minutes later in this movie. Yeah. But I do not think it is a well-crafted film. I think it kind of bungles what should be an incredible story and makes it only a reasonably interesting way to spend 90 minutes. So, well, so here's, the, here's the thing about the way this story goes is... Up until the moment that this sort of starts to get re- revealed in the world, he has so utterly failed at his documentary mm-hmm. that it's almost laughable. Like, basically, this guy, he's he's been competing. He actually does surprisingly well. He gets, like, 14th or whatever one year when he does this race. And he's like, he's like, I wanted to be top 100. I got 14th. Like, I crushed it, basically, right? He's like, but the guy's... There's one line where he said something like, there was, like, the first eight guys, then a few more guys, and then there was me. Right. And he's basically making the point that, like... He's in another league. Yeah, he's he's not even close to the top guys, and the only way he could possibly do that is maybe if he did what his hero did <laughs> and starts mm-hmm. doping, right? So, he's like, okay, I'm going to go on this doping regimen. Uh, it, it's, it's sort of confusing whether he was like, I just want to dope and see if it works, and then he was like, oh, well, I heard – well, obviously Lance Armstrong got away with not getting caught. So maybe I can dope, do well, and then figure out – how. like it's like a weird sort of test he's trying to do on his mm-hmm. own. But whatever. The point the point I want to make is that like the next time he does this race after having doped for a year, he gets like 34th. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, he does worse. Like he does significantly worse. So like – Let's pretend like nothing ever comes of the whole crazy Russia scandal thing. Like he never meets Gregory, whatever. Like it's just him. I'm going to dope and try to raise my my, my rank of 14. Mm-hmm. He drops the 34. Like he's fucked. Yeah. <laughs> like basically put all put all the footage in a trash can, light it on fire like I <laughs> wasted the last year and pump my body full of shit that who knows what it's doing to me, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's screwed. <laughs> and then he just stumbles <laughs> onto this thing. But here's the thing is, clearly, the story went way above his pay grade. Oh, yeah. Like, there are moments where because he's the only person who's been, like, walking hand in hand and actually seeing stuff, he gets called into weird testimony rooms where he's speaking on behalf of the guy. Mm-hmm. But shortly after that, the rest of the film is B-roll footage and news clippings. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that, like... He didn't get taken along for the ride as the guy who broke the story, right? He is not the <laughs> he's not the post, right? Yeah. He, he's not like oh, I'm gonna put out all these documents. <laughs> he's like, uh, guys, no, I was. Can I? No, I don't. don't I have, was there too. Uh, yeah, yeah, like it's basically him saying, and I helped, mm-hmm. even though like it was essentially this stuff also came out. Because I mean, <laughs> he did like buy him his plane ticket here. He. 
it is unclear what would have happened had he not stumbled into this. Yeah, like that guy. Had this guy not had a friend in the U.S. all of a sudden. Yeah, he might might be dead. He might have been – I mean he might be dead now. We don't know. (laughs) But like he he may have been killed over in Russia like as this – but still if he hadn't met him, he wouldn't have decided to go public. So I mean (laughs) basically this guy potentially screwed over that guy's life and then also rescued him. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a a weird story where it's like he literally just fell into something and – Suddenly, this guy that he brought here is really, really important, and then now that guy's in hiding. And it's kind of like we – there was a little window of time where our filmmaker gets to be part of the spotlight, and then he's just playing catch-up like the rest of us are, trying to see what is coming out from the actual investigation that's taking place by these – I don't know if they're government bodies exactly, but like these organizations that are set to be in charge of like the Olympic right. organization, the World Anti-Doping Federation or whatever yeah. it's called. Um, and it's kind of it, it's it's almost sad because it's like he starts off with a story that's not that interesting. It becomes really interesting and then just sort of gets out of his hands and he can't participate it to the level that like a real uh, a really great documentary would continue to follow, and then we just mm-hmm. get news, news, news reports and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It was, it, it starts off very confusing. I don't know what it's trying to do. Then it gets super interesting. Yeah, and then it's sort of like, and that's this. That, that's all she wrote. Yeah. <laughs> so, did you ever see Citizen Four, the Snowden yeah, yeah. documentary? I. I couldn't help but be reminded of that movie because Citizen Four won the Academy Award. I think as a documentary, it's a pile of trash. I think it is not a well-made documentary at all. It isn't well shot. It's extremely manipulative. The characters who are speaking are totally full of themselves. It devotes like the second half of its documentary to them giving lectures in Brazil about how the U.S. is spying on Brazil. Like, <laughs> it's just like I did not like the documentary but it was required viewing because of the access it got into this crazy thing that people saw from the outside. And now yeah. all of a sudden you are getting a personal window in that nine times out of ten could not exist, right? It's just a fluke. Yeah. And and that made it very interesting. And this felt similar to me where the access that this Brian character got by virtue of just stumbling into it, just yeah, by virtue yeah. of having happening to have been holding a camera in the right place at the right time and befriending this guy, makes it very interesting to watch. And it inadvertently shows you a lot about the way the Russian propaganda machine works, the way things like escalate, the way people get kind of scapegoated and thrown thrown under the bus. Yeah. That makes it very interesting to me, and I think it is all just a coincidence. Yeah, so... so- so here's the other thing that I – one of the most interesting things to me about the way this documentary turns out is like if I can put on – if I can put on my like Reddit investigator hat, right? Mm-hmm. It starts off with the guy trying to find somebody who can help him beat a doping test, right? Mm-hmm. He speaks to this guy, another old maybe crazy guy mm-hmm. who's like, yeah, let's totally do this. And he's like, well, actually, I don't want to be on record – saying anything let me put you in touch with my friend Mm -hmm. who happens to be in russia yeah at no point in time did anybody go like maybe this guy who put you in contact with him who was very suspicious about telling you anything other than this guy's name may have done shit on the u.s side yeah (laughs) like 
he's clearly guilty of something, right? Like, or at least he's very aware of it. Yeah, yeah. Like, so it's one of those things where it's like, he knows what's up, and you just never re-questioned him. He's in the very beginning of the film. You're like, well, he just told me the guy's name. Obviously, he doesn't know anything. Like, he was already – he's like a guy wearing a trench coat, a hat, glasses, standing in an alleyway going, psst, psst, over here, over here. I got some doping information for you. It's like, well, fucking deep throat over here. Yeah. Like, know some shit. My only counter to that is I believe this guy may have been an academic – and he might have known this Russian for his academic invention of a certain way of detecting the presence of human growth hormone. Or it not. Might have been a or, or, not or not detecting. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm, I'm just saying, like, you got to do your investigation. There were a lot of rabbit holes. This did not go down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It just seemed like an obvious, like, once you decide this guy did some crazy shit, maybe investigate his friends who mm-hmm. also are in the same industry of, like, Analyzing piss. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. Mm-hmm. Jet fuel doesn't melt <laughs> steel beams. Nope. Sure doesn't. And you can't unscrew those bottles. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so should we move on to our next documentary? I think so. All right. So the next one up on the list in random order, semi-random order, is a little film called Strong Island. Um, and it is a documentary where the filmmaker is sort of looking back upon uh, the death of her brother that happened several years beforehand and sort of dealing with um, the the event that took place and sort of how no trial ever um, came in his basic murder. So, uh, Stephen, what did you think of Strong Island? I feel very conflicted about my feelings <laughs> on Strong Island. I want to... I want to be careful with how I express the pros and cons of the movie because obviously the subject of a person getting murdered, a film made by a family member trying to dissect what happened, the story of a black man being murdered and the justice system not doing right by it. These are all very big emotional topics that many people have relations to that I don't have a personal relationship to. So I can only speak to my feeling as a viewer. I think the story this movie set out to tell, I believe would make for a great compelling documentary. That is the story of how did this person who seemed to live a fairly blameless, fairly normal teenage life wind up being shot and not only did the person who shot him not get convicted he didn't even go to trial like a grand jury decided this doesn't even meet the bare minimum required for us to look into this shit and that that would make for a very interesting documentary yeah another very interesting documentary you could make is the human side of it how did this affect a family what it what it happens when a family goes through this loss what changes what were they like before what were they like after Completely valid other way of telling this story. Different focus, still a great documentary. The problem I had with this movie primarily comes down to the fact that the director is the sister of William, uh, the man who was shot. And I believe Yancey, I think, is is her name. Or Yance. Yancey, I think, is how it's pronounced. Uh, Yancey Ford, she... She made this documentary in a way that it is not a 
showing little slices of life. It isn't showing human interests. It's not showing the family interacting in their natural habitat and painting a portrait of what the family was like and what they're like afterwards. This is a a very sad, dour documentary with no lightness in it at all, which is fine. You don't need to put lightness in a in yeah. a documentary about something this devastating. But I think that combination of a very sad documentary turning meta and pointing the camera at the documentary filmmaker, it it, it was really hard for me to combine those two feelings. Uh, there are many moments in the film where she turns the camera inward, shows herself reacting to things, shows herself reading poetry that she wrote or that her brother wrote, shows herself being devastated by stuff. And, like, all documentary filmmaking is a little bit like quantum entanglement, right? Where the observer <laughs> the observer modifies the result you observe. Yeah, yeah. People are never going to act the same in front of a camera as they would without the camera. Yeah. That's true in the next film we're going to talk about. It's true in Icarus. It's always true. There's something about the documentary filmmaker being the one in front of the camera, looking directly at you and expressing emotion that it's, it didn't have the slice of life authenticity that I felt like it was going for. And it made me feel like this was a filmmaker who took a tragedy and tried to make it into an artistic film to be a person who made an artistic film. And there, something about that just rubbed me the wrong way. I had a lot of trouble tracking with the emotions she was trying to convey a lot of things I would be feeling and then she would make a choice, a kind of like accusatory or more artistic choice that threw me out of the loop and made me just feel like I don't know what this documentary is for. And I yeah. think that's how I feel in the end. I don't, I don't think she knows what story she set out to tell because it begins as a story of a miscarriage of justice. It Because that story is not very long right like the, yeah. the the actual facts that we know about that are only maybe 10 minutes worth 15 minutes worth it extends to being a story about the family but i think what she lands on is a story about herself and the guilt that she feels in relationship to this and if it were painted as that from the beginning i would be on board with it but i i feel like it's trying to be all of these things at once and it it just makes it be a very dissonant documentary to me. So I, yeah. I, I wasn't tracking with what the filmmaker was doing. And that is my, <clears throat> as carefully as possible, trying to criticize what is certainly a very personal thing that yeah, yeah. it's hard to criticize, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, mean yeah. I, I think it's safe to say that we both agree there was a miscarriage of justice. Yeah. Like, it's pretty clear just from the basic out, like, there is no, there is no firsthand account from any of her family members that I don't believe whole cloth, right? It's just like, yeah, it sounds like this guy just straight up shot your brother. Mm -hmm. And the grand jury was like, well, sorry. And that's super fucked up. Mm -hmm. um, there is no part of the facts that are laid out in this case that I reject in any way. Mm -hmm. My problem with this documentary is that the way it was done feels kind of gross to me. Mm -hmm. um, the The filmmaker makes herself the center figure in this story. Mm -hmm. And 
It'd be one thing if it was all building to her own realization that she does have guilt over it. But like that scene is just one little piece of this puzzle. And it feels like there are a lot of very muddy things that she's trying to do where it's like I'm trying to cover this and I'm trying to cover the story of like how I didn't come out until I moved away off to Mm -hmm. college and this part about like uh, these backstory. Like it, it starts off as like, look. My brother was a great guy. He wanted to be a corrections officer. He helped my mom uh, work at the jail and, like, try to teach people and stuff like that. And, like, just trying to build up this character of this guy. And it's like if that was just the documentary, like, look, this is this is the guy that we knew growing up. Wouldn't hurt a fly. Mm-hmm. Wanted to help people. Was spending the last few months of his life trying to become a corrections officer. Like... This is yeah, and and she reads <clears throat> journal entries from days before the event yeah, takes place, yeah, yeah. and that like that paints such a compelling eulogy and a compelling character study of forcing you to confront. Look at the, this; could have been anyone. Like yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like it's like those parts are are great. Like when it's his own words speaking about himself without knowledge of what's going to happen to him in a few days. That, that there's compelling stuff in there, mm-hmm. but I feel like the filmmaker literally turns the camera on herself, even in times when there was clearly no camera there. Mm-hmm. There are composite shots where she, it, it it looks like she's faking over the f- sh- shoulder footage so that she can react in real time to something the person she's interviewing is saying, mm-hmm. and it's it's such an odd choice. Mm-hmm. Like it's. It feels like, like, doesn't feel like authentic reaction. It feels like her like mugging for the camera, like like she's mm-hmm. trying to like, mm, look at look at my face. This is what I think about what he's saying right now. And there's something that really, really just kind of I was like, mm, mm-hmm. I don't know. And like th- this film ends with her inserting the last moments of his life. Like, she writes what the thoughts were that were going through his head in the last moments of her life, even though she was nowhere near him and has no idea what he was thinking. Mm -hmm. And having watched the film up until that moment, I was just like, I I don't like I this I don't like what you're doing. And and the thing is, I think there's a there's a place for those stylistic insertions, like right before that moment, she gives what I thought was like a very compelling kind of spoken word poetry about what are the contours of fear? What is the shape? Where can you find it? And she lets that bleed into a reading of uh, the autopsy report about unremarkable, you know, kidneys, unremarkable, this unremarkable heart. Like to, to me, that kind of thing, like that is compelling. Like that, that is a way of, painting tone and making a kind of interesting statement yeah but it just veers into lines sometimes where it those don't feel like they mesh with the documentary format that she's sprinkling all around it like i'm i'm completely happy to see a you know a spoken word piece or a protest statement or a work of art for someone who is remembering their brother i also don't think there's anything particularly selfish or gross about saying 
what this tragedy means for your identity and coming out and how these little things mattered so much to you in ways that your brother couldn't have known at the time. All of all of those stories are completely great to tell, but there's something about the way they're all combined together here that feels like a bait and switch almost. Like it feels like it's going in being one thing, but it winds up being many other things. Yeah, and I mean like the opening of this film, like if we go back to... <laughs> college writing 101 or whatever right like the opening statement of this film like the thesis statement right Mm -hmm. is her calling up the guy or calling up somebody in the system asking for information about what the grand jury ruled and them saying like oh we can't release that information because that's not the way grand juries work like sorry Mm -hmm. like i i can't i'm not going to tell you things from this like sealed um grand jury deliberation whatever right Mm -hmm. and her hanging up the phone and it's kind of like it's kind of like her saying well i'm going to get to the bottom of this yeah. right like it, it's they won't tell me what happened so i'm going to say what happened yeah. and that sets the tone for everything mm-hmm. if it was like hey this is the life of my brother growing up i don't think he deserved what happened to him and i think he was a better guy than what the system sort of shows then you start with the growing up story, not mm-hmm. start with the scene that sets the tone for the narrative you're about to tell yeah. and then kind of cut back and forth it, between it all these. It kind of makes it into a procedural, which is not what it's going to wind yeah, up Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like really there's – there is almost no fact in this. So even going back to like the moment that you said that you really liked about her, her like reading the autopsy report and saying like heart, unremarkable, whatever – even that scene, which I agree, in the moment, I was kind of like, oh, like, this is... I, I just think it's, like, an interesting bit of, like, found art almost, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah, yeah. turning something into something else. But here's the thing. We were not watching... We were not looking at the autopsy report. We were looking at... A reenactment. It, it was the equivalent of stock artwork, like clip art, mm-hmm. of a nondescript nude male that an autopsy <laughs> who, who performs an autopsy what yeah. an autopsy person mm-hmm. aut- what, what's the word for someone who does autopsies mortician no yeah is it i don't actually know the name of that the, the that. doctor in the morgue <laughs> we're gonna uh coroner coroner yeah yeah so we're not looking at the coroner's report we're, we're looking at this this like stock artwork of a body that a coroner would fill out given the report so mm-hmm. part of me doesn't even believe that that was not artistic license right like because we could see the doctor's handwriting we could see the marks of where the incisions were we could see like spleen unremarkable brain mm-hmm. unremarkable whatever and that would add that much like she spends the, the opening of the movie like showing photos of the family and like when yeah. she tells the story of them growing up it's all through photos which was Great, like like seeing them in those moments was was totally fine, um, but like because there is now a complete disconnect in the one to one authenticity of the statement she's making, and she's making a gradual progression into more artistic license. Mm-hmm. And I had already kind of come to the conclusion that like something just feels a little weird about the way this narrative is being told. It was it's kind of like it takes away from the point she's trying to make because it now feels like she's exercising more of an attempt to make a point than to like there, there is, there's no objective stepping back from the scenario and telling a narrative 
that is being like revealed to her, she's trying to tell a very specific thing in a very specific way that is very much centered around herself. Mm -hmm. And that isn't like what, when we were deciding to do this review, um, not of this film specifically, but about of all these reviews, um, we were kind of reading the descriptions of all the documentaries. And this was one of the most interesting sounding ones. Like it was the one that I was like, Oh, I'm totally up for watching this. Like this sounds like pretty compelling. And I think that, as I watched it, I just became very uncomfortable with, mm-hmm. with the way the story is being told. And it sucks because I immediately sympathized with the family, um, yeah. with the deceased. Like it was like, I'm clearly <sighs> some shit went down yeah. and the justice justice system failed. But like this, like, well, what's interesting <laughs> is there are, there are hints that reveal a lot of things about the way it went down and the the problems associated with that. Like she has a conversation, so she calls the DA's office. They can't they refuse to remark on anything. Eventually she hits they're, they're a, unremarkable. Yeah. Ev- eventually she hits a detective who is willing to talk to her. Yeah. Like he was one someone who investigated leading up to the case. I didn't fully get who he was investigating for, if he investigates for the prosecutor, if there's such a thing as a defense yet. I I don't know how a grand jury works in general. But when he... So she talks to him. He says there were some incidents leading up to this that helped create an argument of plausible self-defense. And then he calls later to give details. They're really weak details. And he ends that by saying... And, you know, I'm I'm afraid these were compelling and I think the grand jury made the right call. Like, that's basically what he says is yeah. there's no way around it. And, and, and to and, me, and, that and, is yeah. mind-blowing that, that that level, even to this day, like 20 years later, they can look back and say, I stand by that. I think that was enough to not even indict. Like, that, to me, that's crazy. Yeah. But also, he doesn't – he – he says from a legal standpoint, they made the right call, not like, I believe that this was a self-defense killing, right? He's, right? he's just saying that, like, based on the evidence at hand and this other piece of information, which I guess I can leave for people who want to see the document documentary, um, he says that, like, given that, that's the right call. I mean, we're, we'll, right. we'll be talking I, about abacus later, yeah. but in that court trial, like, there are people like, regardless of what you think, your job is not to determine this it's supposed to it's it's given these criteria what is the outcome and his argument is not like well yeah it was totally justified killing it was that like well there was like according to this i i I just think there's a there's a blase treatment of it where it would it it kind of makes it sound like well the facts are the facts they did the right thing but like there is a lot of judicial discretion and i think like yeah, yeah. You, I, without making like an overly obvious statement, I think if this were a white woman who was in the same situation, a grand jury would have chosen to indict. Because indicting, that's not the same as finding someone guilty. That's just saying there's enough information here to believe that this may have been yeah. homicide, right? And I think like the fact that it was an all-white jury from the sounds of it and the fact that this was their early 90s and a lot of these issues were not 
in the public eye in any like major way. People were not thinking about accounting for bias. They weren't thinking of any of this. And all they saw was the potential of a, a man who is so scary that the idea that he could pick up a vacuum cleaner constitutes like a threat upon one's life. Um, I don't know. If I, if I were a detective and it was now decades later, I would, I would probably be recasting this in a different way yeah. because I – yeah, there's a difference between letter of the law where they monstrously abusing their power versus ought they have like taken more context into consideration and decided that no, they shouldn't do it. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, things like that to me are revealing that like even even this far later, people who were involved will kind of stand by how it went down. Yeah. That's to to me that was interesting. But those are like very few and far between. Yeah. And most of the documentary, I couldn't tell you looking back what what new things it revealed because it kind of just like floats in this space for a while and draws out emotions and doesn't doesn't bring a whole lot more to the table yeah to to, to me like the most compelling thing about the story is that the thing like if you trace it back what led to his death was a random chance accident in the mm-hmm. middle of the road one random night. Yeah. And somebody saying like, hey, I own a garage. If we don't file a police report, I'll fix your car for you. Mm-hmm. Like, that accident doesn't happen. He's still alive today. Like, it's, yeah. that is one of those, like, that, that to me, that was like the thing where I was like, just random crazy shit, like, just mm-hmm. spirals out of control and leads to a huge tragedy. Yeah. Um, and a grave like misjustice and it all just happens because one random incident that has nothing to do with the actual events later yeah um yeah i i agree i think the, the story at the root of it there's many <coughs> interesting ways to tackle it i think the filmmaker drops the ball in the way she chooses to do it yeah all right should we move in on into our next film yeah just continuing with the the light, happy documentary fair. <laughs> yeah. So our third documentary we're talking about is a little film called Last Men in Aleppo. And it's basically the story of this group of volunteers, right, that are uh, part of a, a group that they call the White, the Helmets. White Helmets. And essentially, they're in Syria. City gets bombed. They immediately rush to the rubble of the building that was hit and try to start rescuing people. And mm-hmm. it's sort of just a documentary that doesn't have a lot of narrative um, built into its structure. It sort of just follows these two members of this organization and kind of shows you a little bit of their home life and a lot of what their, their, the, the thing that they've dedicated themselves to Mm -hmm. um, what they go through when a building is randomly bombed in their city. So Stephen Miller, what did you think of this film? The, this is one of those movies where I think I'm incapable of separating the subject matter from the art of the film. I can't, I can't give a review that like says the artistic merit in a vacuum because this this film is all subject. And I think of all of the documentaries we watched, this is by far the most powerful Uh, the one that does the most with the documentary format that only a documentary could do. I did not enjoy watching it at all. I I can't imagine anyone who would, but it, 
so basically what this documentary does is it, it shows you the lives of these people who are staying in Aleppo, which is a city that's being cluster bombed by multiple people. Yeah. And in the media, the way we think about it in the age of Trump and even in the age of Obama is, oh, ISIS was there. ISIS has formed a stronghold. And even if like Bashar al-Assad is a bad dictator, we all need to just destroy ISIS at all costs. That's like the narrative that we that we hear normally in the media. Yeah. And what we're seeing here is a bunch of civilians who live in their homes and can't go anywhere because countries won't take them anywhere else. Yeah. Just like living in the situation where every few days crazy ripples of bombs drop and destroy buildings and the and these men drive in their car that like barely works instantly go to the site of the rubble and try to dig out people who were buried like yeah. digging out children and you know families and it, or the, just pieces of them yeah like, just pieces of them because i like i presume for burial purposes or for some rites like it's it's extra important. That, that's just a sense I got. I might be wrong, yeah. but it, it seemed like it was a very, very big deal to salvage um, whatever they could of people who were lost. And the camera doesn't shy away from this at all. In the in the beginning of this film, it is very, very, very intent on showing you, you know, bleeding children in the rubble, dead bodies that are being pulled out. Yeah. We see a person who was alive and then we find out that the child died in the hospital right after it. It's yeah, a like a, there's, there's a scene where one of our, I guess you could call them leads mm -hmm. is talking about like, Oh yeah. Like we pulled this family out. Two of them died, but luckily there's these other two that made it and like, well actually three of them died. And it's just yeah. like, he's just like, it, I, He's not speaking English, but it looked like he said fuck. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it was it was just like shit. And that that is the general tone of this movie is the thing that it really drives home is the day in, day out grind of this stuff. Like yeah. I can't like appropriately think of movies to compare it to, but there there are just things like uh in a very different subject matter, um Two Days and Two Nights, I think that was the name of the movie a couple years back about a woman who was losing her job. Um, th that did a kind of similar thing where it just like repeats the same conversation over and over and over again. And it's depressing every single time. And it's yeah. just like trying to impress upon you, like get into the headspace of someone who has to deal with this sort of life. And like I think it, it shows a lot that I like in Slice of Life filmmaking. Like there are moments of lightness here. Like the, people are joking around. They, people all bring their kids to a playground during one of the days of the ceasefires and everyone is celebrating. The adults are going down slides and everyone is just yeah. like, no matter what your situation, you're going to find joy in whatever you when can. They're, when they're buying fish from a market. Yeah, and just buying fish. Putting and them in random things, different places. Just enjoying the, the presence of fish, right? Yeah. And having something else to think about. And I think it gets... It, it gets a lot of interesting things. Like you always hear that ER nurses or people who work with tragedy constantly develop a dark sense of humor to cope with it. Um, and this kind of shows that too. Like there's a scene where they're singing and bonding over like yes. describing like terrible things. Right. And, yeah. and it's just people who are, they're in the fog of war and they're trying to do the right thing and they're trying to cope. And 
I thought it was very, very moving. And, like, it did... It did what I think is, like, one of the highest things a documentary can do, which is bring a sort of empathy to your living room that normally you would only get if you met one of these people. And I think the way this is made, like... A lot of documentaries apparently have been made about Syria in the last year, including one by Matthew Heineman, who I really liked from Cartel Land. Um, but this is the only one I think that was made by a Syrian, like by someone who was in there. Yeah. And I think it just lends itself a different feeling because you're watching these people from the perspective of someone who knows them and knows their culture. And to to them, this is just a neighbor right this is yeah. just like Khaled this is this is just our life and all of a sudden our life includes facades of buildings being ripped from it and we're still going about our daily life like yeah there's a scene in this movie where a drone shot is showing a man who is like in his living room I think he's watering plants or putting out a blanket and then it zooms out and you see that he's just in this crumbling facade of a place where a building used to be yeah and I don't know. It's it's a brutal documentary, but I think it like it conveys a lot and it definitely made me think much less flippantly about the Syrian crisis than I had before, even when I cared about it before. It's just until you like really look people in the eye. It, yeah. So, yeah, I think this is very hard to watch, but very, very, very um, powerful and worth worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's 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 definitely it like it, it may not be the the most strongly constructed film uh, of of the batch um but it's by far the most impactful like mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things where like you just watch it and you just feel like shit <laughs> mm-hmm. and you you're like watching the act of these people who a lot of the times like it's not just it's not like somebody who was like hey i'm going to go over to this place and like try to do good this is like somebody who most likely grew up in the city and is sort of just stuck there has kids at home it's not just Mm -hmm. a guy who like i'm fine risking my life because i'm just trying to help people it's like no like i'm leaving my family in one part of the city where bombs could potentially be dropped tonight to go spend three nights over in this other part of the city where bombs have already dropped Mm -hmm. to just try to help people and like his organization or their their organization is being targeted like straight up all the time because, which is insane yeah, which will I mean, not to give the bad guys any ideas but i feel like if you bomb the same target twice you're 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 likely to get some of those people if you're really mm-hmm. trying to take them out but like it, it's just it, it's a crazy thing to think that like all the time like the opening of the movie it almost feels like the way a narrative film would open, where it's like a bunch of guys just talking and then bombs are going off. Except for this, just really happened. Yeah, it's like yeah, a bunch it of guys. It almost felt like a like Catherine Bigelow movie or something, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, right? yeah. where you're just like in the thick of it immediately. Yeah, and it's like the the entire movie, like <laughs> there's no Hans Zimmer score below it, like just making you feel intense. But like you're just like I'm just waiting for something to go off, and it's these guys just rush into it, and they like. I think somebody says that specifically um, <laughs> some of them were construction workers and engineers mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But, like, for the most part, they don't understand the nature of, like, a building. Like, they're just in there digging in the rubble trying to hope that they can get to anybody as fast as they can yeah. and at least find the bodies if somebody's passed away. And, like, they're 
risking themselves like like one of them gets hurt randomly one day because like they fell over a thing as they were trying to help a situation it's just like it's dangerous to be around crumbling buildings that have an unknown like underlying structure Mm -hmm. and just kind of watch these guys go in do their thing and really their goal is just like let me save one person in this building (laughs) and like that that's a huge win but i think one of the things too is when you see this sort of thing oftentimes you kind of conceive of it as adults right like mm-hmm. your adult brain understanding uh something about the conflict and just the craziness of the situation but there's like this weird like uh, the florida project aspect of yeah. this film where you're just watching these super charismatic children mm-hmm. who have not known a life where their fucking city was not being bombed on a daily basis yeah like it's not like like Bad shit happens in the U.S. and people freak the hell out. And here it's like a kid just like, oh, remember that building down the street? It's not there anymore because it got bombed. Mm-hmm. Daddy was over there helping people. It's like there, there's there's like there's a, an incredible scene in in the middle of the movie where like a boy who was saved is talking to one of the guys. Yeah. And he's he's asking them, him without any comprehension yeah. of what happened. He's like. I was just under rocks and then you pulled me out. Yeah, how did you do it? Like, yeah, how, was it just you? Was yeah. there two of you? Were there three of you? And like, he's like, oh, and he's like, no, yeah, it was just us. And like, this little boy <laughs> is just talking about like this mm-hmm. common day occurrence where he was buried under a building yeah. and this guy came and rescued and how great this guy is. And just him wanting to hang out with him and like he's like oh i have to go and he's like no no no, you can't drink go coffee, yeah please. drink have the coffee. coffee we're cooking coffee please stay longer yeah. like an amazing scene like <laughs> there's another one too where um the the kids after they're playing a helicopter flies by and suddenly it becomes unsafe or at least it gives the appearance of being unsafe and it pans back and this little boy has just like broken down crying while he's holding a balloon and he's just like so sad that his fun day is being ruined yeah and uh, that like that messed me up that's just so sad because you're just (laughs) looking at this kid who like just wants to have a fun time and he doesn't comprehend what's going on at all yeah 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 i don't know it's it's weird like this film like it when the credits rolled and it like said like written by this person whatever i was like to me there is no it, it feels more like a diary rather than yeah. a documentary and that's not a negative like it mm-hmm. just, like this this film may have been like it, it would the impact of this film would have been lessened if it was trying to be a narrative documentary yeah the fact that like it's sort of just like hey these guys are going to go do their thing and the cam like the the camera is almost obnoxious at times where it's like it's getting too in in there as like they're digging through the rubble and stuff where it's like almost the person's almost in the way sometimes and it just feels like it it, it just perfectly captures the franticness of like being a member of this organization well, and, and, and that's why I, I was glad too that it was made by a Syrian citizen because if it were just some other person from another place kind of voyeuristically like shoving in to try to get the sadness of it yeah i would feel a little bit more weird about the camera capturing these moments when probably these people couldn't sign consent forms like i assume that's not a thing in yeah, yeah. in syria that people are doing but the fact that it came from the inside it comes off more as a cry for help right it comes off as a look at look at what's going on here yeah yeah uh, a thing i like couldn't help but feeling after was like a a deep 
political anger about like the the mostly unspoken aspect of this movie it comes up a few times is our relationship to Syria which is like a refugee crisis and that's what we hear about is we can't do it we can't take in 15,000 people who knows where they came from who knows what they could do what if an attack happens that hurts three people in a subway and like looking at what life like actually looks like for these people yeah while the people who are like largely involved in making it that way like the people that are making the technology that causes this kind of destruction are sitting in their like happy technologically like sound country safe from almost everything bitching about the 0.001% chance that like something bad might happen to them if they help them yeah. and pretending to be nice about it like we we could bring them in but oh, we just can't i wish i could help i would like <laughs> fuck you like <laughs> like like if there are parts of the world where this is life we shouldn't be that happy <laughs> yeah. we should have like a little bit of a risk thrown our way to like mitigate that and that i i just felt like very angry watching this that like we live in a world where we're so removed from this. It takes like a documentary to make you even know that it exists. Yeah. While we like whine and scream and like give a shit about like taxes and like shit that just <laughs> seems like so overwhelmingly unimportant compared to this. And it, well, 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 we whine and scream about the quality of the Cloverfield paradise. Exactly. Yeah. It. <laughs> I just think like. Anyone who, like, is not on the side of taking in as many people as you can and absorbing the risk and, like, it might not be, like, politically winning to admit that you're absorbing risk by doing that. But, like, yeah. fuck it. Let there be more attacks. I don't give a fuck, right? <laughs> like, compared to that, like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I felt, like, very angry at the end of this movie. It just seems, like, un... It seems unbelievable how little, like, we have to reckon with this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well said. And yeah, <laughs> on that somber note, yeah. should we move our way into sure. this our ne next? This note? next one is a little less uh, less angering. <laughs> All right. So the next uh, film on our list is the film Abacus, small enough to jail, mm -hmm. and it is the story of this one little family-owned bank who turns out to be the only people who are actually being uh, actually indicted uh, in the subprime mortgage uh, fiasco mm -hmm. that uh, happened a little while back. And basically the point is that they're such a small little bank. They are not too big to fail. They're small enough to jail. Yeah. And uh, it is sort of about the case that was brought against them and what the outcome of that case was. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, Stephen Miller, what did you think of this film? I thought this was a very interesting movie for reasons that have only a little bit to do with, like, the central story of the movie. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> um, so the the major thing about the Abacus Bank and about the family involved is that they are Chinese immigrants living in Chinatown, servicing a primarily Chinese community in New York City. And with that comes a lot of different ways of having to handle things because in Chinatown, there's a lot of sidewalk front, like shopkeepers. There's a lot of cash only places. There's a lot of money under the table. They don't 
they don't explicitly say this, but you can imagine there's a lot of undocumented people that are involved in that, right? Like there, it's a whole culture that has existed very separately in New York City and is like known. It's a part of the city. It's a part of what people like about it. You know, it's a vibrant culture that's very different. And like in comes the government saying like you didn't dot the I and cross the T in this form. We're going to indict you for grand larceny. Um, and like, so the, the actual trial is pretty crazy. It, it's crazy to me that of all the people to target, uh, the DA would choose to target these people Yeah, making in, there are some arguments they make that might be correct. I think like some of the lesser charges, there's one that's like, I don't know, uh, fraud in the fourth degree or something. Yeah, like, I, I, I don't know what fourth I, degree yeah. means, but maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe it seemed very like, Basically, their crime was giving loans to people who other banks wouldn't have given loans to. Yeah, and and, and a part of that that's it. <laughs> a part of that is some of the employees lower on the food chain were committing fraud. Like they were yeah, taking yeah, yeah. bribes, they were falsifying documents, they were doing bad shit. Yeah. But the and, whole and the reason film opens with them yeah. saying like we caught this one dude, we called an outside help to do an investigation, found some other dudes all of them got fired. <laughs> yeah. And that investigation snowballed into this thing that is targeting them instead. Yeah, so yeah. to me, that, that was crazy. I would believe some of those lesser charges might be true by technicality. I don't know. Like, yeah. I don't know if you can have a bank for this long and truly be completely unaware that that might be happening. Not my place to say. But the main argument the prosecutor is trying to make is larceny, theft. They are stealing from Fannie Mae. They're stealing from the federal government. Even though none of these things caused a negative to the government at all. I, yeah, there yeah, was yeah. a quote where of the 3,000 loans that were given in the last – in the period under dispute here, like eight of them defaulted, seven. Like an, an insanely low rate for any bank, let alone when you don't have the law of large numbers. And that's just like eight bad apples, right? Like yeah, that, yeah. That's so low. It's so inconsequential to any of this. And I, so I, I thought like that concept was very interesting, just watching the kind of shameless way it seemed they were trying to make make an example of these people for yeah. very little good reason, kind of sticking to the letter of the law while ignoring the wider context of all the other people who are going scot-free. Um, but like the other thing I don't get is like <clears> – <throat> Having only watched The Big Short or whatever, <laughs> mm-hmm. wasn't their whole thing is like people were trying to buy up all these shitty loans yeah. to like make money off of them. Mm-hmm. And their complaint was that the shitty loans they bought from them were actually fine. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the thing that I don't understand. Yeah, it's absurd. Like, and one thing is I can't tell if the film presents this as being related to the housing crisis of 2008. I couldn't tell watching it whether that was actually true from the DA side and the case side, or if it was only used by example to show how absurd it is that they're being charged when these giant banks are. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't really tell, right? Like it, It's not clear that there was a one-to-one or not. But I mean, the, the description of the film yeah. says it, though. Yeah, the so description it's, of the film is definitely so the, the filmmakers want to, yeah. want to compare them. But yeah. So that, that leads me to the other part of the movie that I really liked, which is just watching this family dude the family is the best they're so great there's every archetype here there's the ceo who's like 
the type A personality who just wants to be stressed about something all the time. There's the the patriarch, like the the father at the heart of all this, who's grown into this like kindly older man who like rests on <laughs> who principle. Doesn't like dry chicken sandwiches. Yeah, there's like a long period of the film while they're worrying about this case where him and his wife are discussing like the. It isn't only he's discussing his sandwich being dry. He mentions his sandwich is dry, and then his type A daughters are, like, bickering about it for, yeah. like, five minutes. Oh, well, he should put more avocado on it. But no, they're like, <laughs> it's so weird because they're explaining to each other why he doesn't like the sandwich. He's not saying a word. No. He's just eating the sandwich. <laughs> and that, but, but to me, that, like, says so much about this family dynamic, right? Of like, no, I, I love them. Yeah. Like, they're the best family yeah, ever. I, I really enjoyed watching them. Uh, I think they just bring a lot to it, and it, it, it like brings out the human heart of this. Of look at who this is happening to. Like it couldn't have happened to a nicer group of people. Yeah, like they they couldn't screw over their community if they tried. Like, yeah, they're, they're they're just good people. Yeah, like the the man who started it, the father figure. Repeatedly, he talks about how he was inspired by It's a Wonderful Life and Jimmy Stewart, <laughs> and the way he gets to give loans to all these people and. Among other things, back when there was going to be a sudden uh, uh, rush, I forget what the word is, when a bunch of people try to withdraw money at the same yeah, time, yeah. Uh, he did the This American, or not This American Life, <laughs> It's a Wonderful <laughs> Life. He did the It's a Wonderful Life thing of like running out with a megaphone and talking to people and calming them down and saying, like, I'm one of you, trust me, don't worry about this, yeah. we're all going to be okay. Like, He's just like such a heartfelt figure, and I think... Him contrasting him with the charges that are being brought against the family, it just brings up a lot of interesting questions of what laws should we prioritize and to what degree and how much room do we need to have in our justice system for discretion and things that are someone on the chain is doing something that is not perfectly up to code, but there are good reasons for it. Their heart is in the right place. It's meant to do a good and compensate for the fact that the law isn't totally complete on this stuff. Yeah. I like. I just thought that was super interesting. And by analogy, that has like lots of. The, you can think of like anything from immigration to drug laws to. Well, there's just a lot of stuff that that brings up. So yeah, I I really liked the thrust of this documentary and what it what it made you ponder. Yeah, and it's like the 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 father who started the bank. Like he was having trouble getting his own lines of credits. And he's like, well, this is hard for me. It's going to be hard for the other people in my community. So he just was like, I'm going to start a bank so that I can give lines of credit to like mm-hmm. people in my community that maybe the larger banks who are just care about one thing aren't going to be able to do. And it's like, <laughs> clearly, they're operating under the <laughs> do no evil policy, right? Like, mm-hmm. they're not they're, like they have no intention in screwing over the people like they open by talking about like how much money in the community there is and how like by rejecting these people like other banks are just turning away um the money that this entire community has and it's i don't know it was it was so weird <laughs> especially because like the the guy they fire for doing all the shady shit is who like the DA like scoops up and says like we'll we'll just throw away all the bad things that you did 
if you can come testify. And he's such in, a comically bad yeah, it's, testifier. It's, <laughs> he perjures himself like a thousand times. It's the worst. And it's like, it's so, it, 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 it's, it's literally, it, it, it is genuinely comically mm. sad, this guy's testimonies. Um, and like, it's just, yeah, it's just so weird that like the DA is so hell bent on taking this family down that like the one guy who genuinely was frauding people under like three different names and like giving writing his own checks to himself basically mm-hmm. that guy is like oh we're just gonna let you off scot-free so we can try to take down the family who's trying to make this entire community better yeah um yeah it was just it's it's <laughs> it was just like the easiest documentary to watch it, it was it was so watchable and i don't know if the ending is a thing that i I won't spoil it explicitly, but there are things that could have happened that would have made it a real bummer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And it didn't it didn't go down that way. Um, that's probably a spoiler, but it I, I did I just thought it was I I made a slip of the tongue and said this American life, but that's what this felt like. It felt like one of the more intriguing this American life stories that has like an interesting subject matter it brings up compelling questions it introduces us to characters that are just like so specific and likable and it's just nice to like live in their world and root for them and hope for the best and it's definitely like it's it's it is a family-owned business, but it is a family who was technically separate, not all working at the bank every day until mm-hmm. this situation arose. And, like, the the one daughter, like, has her own, like, law career that she's working on. And she basically says, like, all right, I'm giving this up because I need to go back and help my family. Um, and it's just, like, it's, it's just – it's a really – this is a strong family unit mm-hmm. that uh, – is just incredibly charismatic and yeah. it's just fun. Like I could watch them eat lunch. And we do. <laughs> yeah, we do. But like, just, just there, there, there was a movie we watched recently where we were like commenting on how like characters talking at each other, but not actually together. Yeah. And like, they do a little bit of that where they're all sort of having their own conversation, but at the same time with each other, but also responding in, in turn and stuff. It, it just, it, it, it was, you couldn't write a more entertaining. You couldn't, Noah Baumbach uh, <laughs> couldn't write a more entertaining <laughs> lunch conversation than that. Yeah. Um, I I agree. Yeah. But yeah. Cool. Mm. <laughs> so that was uh, Abacus small enough to jail. Um, <clears throat> if I get face ID to work. All right. The last film. Speaking of faces, <laughs> that was totally accidental. Face ID. Uh, place ID. <laughs> Nice. Uh, but yeah, this is the one that I didn't get to catch, but uh, Stephen Miller was able to catch a screening of it at the local fat house here. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't you tell me and the listeners uh, what you thought of Faces Places? Yeah. So first I'll give a little synopsis. It'll be easy because there's very little by way of <laughs> plot in this film. Uh, Agnes Varda is a famous director from the French New Wave. Um, JR is a photographer and muralist who is kind of a Banksy-esque figure. He's someone who, his shtick, at least as of recent days, is that he takes pictures of people, blows them up, cuts them (laughs) out. Blows up the people? (laughs) Like blows it up to a very large size and makes cutouts that can be pasted on buildings and things. Uh So it's it's kind of a, a very interesting aesthetic that he's doing. And 
they formed a friendship decided to make a movie together. They didn't know what movie they wanted to make. They're just two <laughs> artists, one person who was prominent in the 60s and one person who is a young 30-something hipster who wears a hat and sunglasses that he never removes. <laughs> and they just go on a road trip, basically, trying to make art and make interesting images. Um, and what they settle on is basically going into different villages through France, going into small towns, meeting people for a day or two, interacting with them, and then deciding what art they want to leave there. Uh, in the first place they go, it's a little mostly abandoned minor town uh, where only one woman on the block has stayed in her house and the rest are crumbling. And they wind up talking to her, getting pictures that she had taken of old miners that had lived there like 80 years ago, and then taking her own photo and putting the miners up on the abandoned buildings and then putting her like standing proudly on the house, being the one person who stayed there. <laughs> and we watch her like go outside and look at it and just like tear up and say like, I can't believe I'm like art. Like I can't believe I'm here and this is like my home and this is, it's just like watching people who never would have thought that they would be represented in a way like this, just like enjoy the fact that they're being seen, that their story is being told. And that's like all the, all the movie is they go from town to town. They meet people. They meet a woman who works at a bar and get her to pose with like a cute umbrella that was somebody's great, great grandmother's, and they put that up and it becomes a big tourist attraction and her kids are talking about how amazing it is to see like their mommy be a celebrity now and see people <laughs> – we watch people like take selfies in front of it. Um, they do one with goats at a goat farmer where they learn about like some choose to keep their horns, some choose to burn the horns off and they like have a philosophical argument about that. It's just like a – At what point – at what point do they start doing Michael Caine impressions? Yeah, it feels like the, uh, the trip type of movie. Like that's exactly it's exactly the kind of thing it is. This is like the trip with two artists, yeah. and it's an elderly eighty-eight year old woman with gray hair that she dyes orange at the tips, who's like spunky and rambunctious and like wants to create things she wants to do photography she's reminiscing about the past all the time like the people that she used to hang out with in the 60s and this like hip young guy trying to see her and like they just form a friendship that's really fun it's pleasant uh it goes inward toward the end where he starts talking more about her and her aging and she's like remembering her past and talking about how she doesn't have much time left and he starts doing nice things for her and she plans a nice surprise for him and it it's just a nice movie it's yeah. it's not a major movie i think i think cinephiles above my pay grade will love it a lot more because she was a very famous director she reminisces about jean-luc godard and he like shows up in one way or another in the movie a bunch and he kind of is like a shadow over the film and the, there's a lot of like levels of this that art fans are just going to love because it's about the old and the new and the way art changes people and the, the things it means for me it was just after all of this sadness yeah, yeah. and darkness like it, it was just nice it, it's just nice to watch people use art for good trying to express themselves trying to make people feel heard shining a spotlight on them and just making them be happy for a day. And that that's all this movie is. It's an hour and a half or two hours of just fun, 
tiny human stories, little bits of moments of humor, and not nothing else. So yeah, that does sound interesting, though. I mean, yeah. if I <laughs> we were under the mistaken impression that uh, this film was available on iTunes, mm-hmm. and by the time I realized it wasn't, it was too late for me to catch a screening of this. But yeah, I think there are a lot of layers that people interested in art and filmmaking will probably enjoy. I probably. I was so overloaded <laughs> with documentary sadness from this. Probably the deeper layers mostly escaped me, and I just liked. I liked it as a sequel to the like trip or the Europe trip or what trip yeah. to Spain. Like this was a trip to France, right? This was just <laughs> that was the level that I enjoyed it on. Not something grand and you know best film of the year worthy or anything like that. Just just a fun, nice alternate thing that documentaries can do which is show human stories of happiness and nostalgia and art and yeah show us pretty scenery for a while yeah nice well that uh that is a brief overview i guess our omnibus review of the five uh oscar nominated documentaries from last year as uh, as as we did in our last omnibus review when we sort sort of for forewent uh all of the <laughs> whatever it is uh basically we, we we didn't do individual verdicts at the end of each one but this is a category where an oscar will be presented to one of these films mm-hmm. so gun to your head which which film do you give the oscar to <laughs> i think the oscar ought to go to last man in aleppo yeah i think it's just it if they awarded citizen 4 i can't like i'm not trying to like rip on that movie i just mean they awarded citizen 4 because what it did was so important yeah and that was a primary consideration i think like there none of the rest of these films compare to last men in aleppo and what they're doing what they convey to people yeah. uh, if i had to pick a runner up a movie that i would still be completely happy to win it would be abacus i think that is the other end of the spectrum. It's a documentary showing a very compelling thing you wouldn't have thought about and portraying human interest in the way. And I think it's just the most well-crafted of these from a narrative standpoint. It just builds it up. It builds up the tension well while having enough like niceness and levity to keep it from being a dour experience. So yeah. those those would be my two picks, I think. Last Man in Aleppo, though, is, to me, the clear winner. Yeah, yeah. Last Man in Aleppo is the obvious winner. Um, it is It is the only film that is like has gravity to the story it's trying to tell. I mean, obviously, there was potential gravity for yeah. the Abacus family. <laughs> but I think that it, that it's the film that, like, achieves the goal it is trying to do by far the best. And so, obviously, that's the one that I would give the Oscar to. Um, it will probably get the Oscar. Uh, like you, Abacus is the most fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it, it's the most enjoyable to watch out of all the ones. I didn't see Faces Places, but um sounds like that's, like, a... Close second, maybe, to Abigail's. Yeah, Faces Places, to me, is a great rental. It would just... And I know, like, reviewers and critics, people way above my pay grade love it. So, like, I probably just am not getting something. To me, it would be annoying if, of all of these, that's the one that won. It just seems like the most light and inconsequential of the bunch. Yeah. It's like if Meryl Streep had won for Into the Woods or something. It's just like, come on. <laughs> we We get it. You're the Academy. You love things about film. But, like... Stop it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Cool. Well, that is the end of our omnibus review of all the Oscar-nominated documentary films. So, uh, Stephen Miller, if people want to find you throughout the week, where can they do that? Uh, you can go to twitter.com slash sdavidmiller or sdavidmiller.com. People can find me at ChristopherInRealLife.com or Twitter.com slash ChristopherIRL. You can find the podcast over at TheSpoilerWarning.com where you can get a bunch of the back episodes of the show. If you want to know when the episodes go live, you can follow us at Twitter.com slash SpoilerWarning or like us at Facebook.com slash TheSpoilerWarning. If you want to get a hold of us directly, you can send an email to fans at TheSpoilerWarning.com or you can use the contact form on our site. Music for this episode will come from something. I'm not quite sure, but I'll figure it out when it comes time to edit. So uh, the soundtrack to Faces Places is wonderful. By the is way, it? okay. it's just like I be- I assume it was a friend of Jr. the the artist in it. Uh, it's a person who just does like acoustic guitar, nice melodies the whole time. I it's a good mood mood uh, piece. Well, maybe if you send me a link to a track or something, then. Yeah. We'll use that. Um, but uh, yeah, hopefully, very soon we will be back to a regular schedule of releasing <laughs> one or more films a week on a normal schedule. We're all over our, our flus. <laughs> we're, we're, we're all over everything. We should be back to, to normal for a while. So, yeah, yeah um, that's it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time. Bye.